Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And I'm Crystal Bonham. We're here. We have a full house. We're missing Lauren today, but we have so much great ground to cover. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome back. Our first Problematic Women of 2024. We're doing it. (laughs) Hitting the ground running. The news is hitting the ground running. There's a lot going on. (laughs) Never a dull moment, that's for sure. Never a dull moment. And I, I was glad that things quieted down quite a bit over Christmas. It wasn't like there was craziness happening. The biggest news talked about in my household uh, was rule changes around college football (laughs) and the transfer portal and getting upset over the way that they are now doing bowl games and people opting out. Did you all watch? Well, actually, I I know you all watch (laughs) many of the bowl games. That's a silly question. Yes, yes. I mean, as you know, I'm a fiend for college football. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still, um, I'm not wearing all black today, but I was yesterday because I was in mourning Mm. because my Texas Longhorns uh, didn't pull through against Washington, but yeah, you know, it's you that. know, we're still twelve and two on the year. It was a good one, it's setting us up for success for the next couple seasons there with Coach go. Sark. So not yeah. mad about it. Yeah, and you I mean you made it Final Four? Yeah, go. yeah. You know, we were ranked top three, so yeah. we'll we'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> Quinn Ewers is only a sophomore, so he's going into his junior year. So that's good news. We've got at least next season with him, and Arch Manning's now QB two. So lots to look forward to there. Yeah, yeah. Now, Crystal, I know that you, uh, well, both of you are major football fans. Can you explain? what the difference is between a bowl game and just like a normal season game for those that don't follow football closely. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty simple. Bowl games are really just postseason games. Uh, there's two that are considered part of the college football playoffs. The Rose Bowl, where you saw Michigan overtake Alabama. Bless it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a one good takeaway in my excited opinion. about that. Uh, especially with all the adversity that Michigan had gone through this season with yeah. uh, Coach Harbaugh and all that drama. Uh, it, it was nice to see them come out on top. All the, the tears of joy at the end. Uh, and then the Sugar Bowl, which uh, was Washington and Texas this year. So those two are the playoff games, right? Okay. So whoever wins those two games goes on to the championship game and uh, – It'll be either Washington or Michigan this season, mm-hmm. so that'll Monday be January eighth, Monday night. But we'll see. do you have something to say, Kristen? I, I do actually, <laughs> and I think that I know why Lauren isn't here today, and that is because Georgia Tech won against UCF at the most important <laughs> game of the year. She's in mourning. <laughs> she is. It was actually uh, Georgia Tech's first time winning in like seven years, and. Honestly, I'm going to be real. I like was kind of napping on and off throughout that game, <laughs> but the best moment has gone viral and that's because the coach of Georgia Tech's Yellow Jackets, um he answered a question very very well. So a reporter came up to him afterwards and was like, "You smell like Gatorade. How are you feeling? You're getting the the crowd riled up." And she goes on for like a minute. Homeboy does not stop. And he immediately answers the question with, it's Powerade. We're at Coca-Cola school. And I'm just like... Yes, sir. So that's hilarious. I wasn't like, a huge off. football. <laughs> wasn't a huge football highlight, but I, I just think the media training was on point. I think one that other thing on that was, that's kind of a not, maybe not a hot take, but uh, having just moved back a few months ago from beautiful Tallahassee, Florida, Florida. Uh, <laughs> Georgia trampled Florida State. And there was this whole debacle yes. during when, you know, when they were choosing who was going to be in the actual playoffs yeah. that Florida State got snubbed. And yep. so I think it was just kind of beautiful for me to see the Texas Longhorns make it uh, and Florida State not and then get trampled uh, by Georgia. So. Okay, but yeah. in defense of Florida State, I'm, I'm a Georgia fan and I was happy to see Georgia win. But... Like half the players on Florida State's team opted out, which is well, okay. A opted Dumb out, rules. and then B they they had a lot of injuries at the yeah. end of the mm-hmm. regular season, right? And so mm-hmm. I think it just kind of goes to show their quarterback, uh, was yeah, their quarterback injured, was injured. Was out. Mm-hmm. I think they were at like their string three quarterback I think they were. by the time playoffs came around. Yeah, and so it's like, yeah, I mean, Florida State really had no business being in the playoffs <laughs> this year. Sorry about it. Yeah, <laughs> at, at this point, sadly, it's true. Okay, did you have a favorite bowl game? I mean, the Pop Chart Bowl was my favorite, yeah. and that Why mostly because of the halftime show. <laughs> because it was the most amazing thing ever. I mean, 
Every child, I'm sure, has had a dream about Pop-Tarts, like life-size Pop-Tarts at some point in sure. life. Like, sure. I'm a huge fan. I used to eat them like almost every day. It was disgusting. But it's because they're so good. So seeing that yeah. little guy go down into the toaster and then the, the big guy come out and it was not a person. It was a totally different Pop-Tart. That was awesome. <laughs> so less about the actual football, more about Again. the halftime show. <laughs> We're seeing a theme this year. I don't know why. Well, yeah. in fairness, my favorite to watch was the Duke's Mayo Bowl. Mm. because the commentators were hilarious and just everything was about mayo and they were running (laughs) around the stadium getting fans to dip different things in mayo they kept saying like oh there's some distraction happening on the sidelines yeah (laughs) fans do it i'm like what's going on over there they were just having the time of their lives so it just made it highly entertaining just want everybody to have fun yeah I didn't love watching the actual Michigan-Alabama game until the towards the end and when they went into overtime. That's when it actually got interesting, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, we were Alabama's only loss this season, so I was really bought into making sure that they did not make it to the championship game. And yeah. how cool was it to see the Michigan players go out there? A lot of the seniors went out there um, onto the field after the game and, like, kind of took a little piece of it because— you know, this might be their last game mm-hmm. of their career. And, yeah. you know, like as an athlete, you know this too, Crystal. Like it's hard giving up your identity, kind of what has become your identity. Um, and so that was that was really cool to see Michigan just like kill it in that yeah. ball game. Yeah. It was. Well, I think we did Lauren proud today talking about <laughs> I think so. here at the top of the show. This is all for you, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Kristen, what do we have queued up? On today's show. For sure. Up on today's Problematic Women, there have been record high encounters at the southern border. GOP lawmakers are working to address the issue. But can the crisis be solved? We weigh in. And climate change is a hot-button political issue. What do we know about climate change and how should we respond to it? We will discuss. Plus, the Ohio governor has vetoed a bill aimed at protecting children from gender procedures and protecting women's sports. We tell you what you need to know. And we discuss predictions for the most problematic women of the year. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Well, speaking of football, Michigan, as we just said, beat Alabama Monday in um, that playoff game. Now, as we said, Monday, we have Michigan facing off against Washington for the national championship. That is Monday the 8th. Mark your calendars. I think 7.30 p.m. Eastern maybe is when the game starts. Anyway, but I learned this week that Michigan's football stadium, it's the largest in the U.S. It holds over 107 thousand people but get this you could fill michigan's football stadium three times over with the number of illegal aliens that arrived at the southern border not last year no just in the month of december alone in the month of december alone you could fill michigan's football stadium the largest in the u.s three times over full of illegal aliens so there are more than uh more than 300 thousand illegal aliens were encountered on the southern border just the southern border mind you during the month of december so news nation border correspondent Allie bradley she broke this news on monday i actually met Allie while i was reporting down on the border she's a great journalist i trust her she has a lot of sources with cbp that share data with her since she's so often down there at the border and so she shared this on x um, and kind of had the breakdown of various numbers of what we're seeing and then you look nationwide you zoom out in um in fiscal year 2023 we had over 3.2 million illegal encounters on the southern border just like record after record after record keeps being hit and we're honestly hitting or think a really interesting phase of the border crisis right now where democrats and republicans are agreeing this isn't working something is wrong we have to address this problem 
But the difference is you have Republicans and Democrats who have very different ideas of what the solution is and how the problem should actually be addressed. But when you have you know the mayors of cities like New York and Chicago saying our cities are at breaking points, people start paying attention, especially during an election year. They pay attention. So let's talk about some of these differences that we are seeing. What are some of the differences that we see between Republicans and Democrats when we're talking about what do we do about what now everyone can agree is a major problem at the border. I mean, I think one of the major differences, and this isn't necessarily policy specific, but when we look at solutions, a lot of the solutions that Democrats propose are after these illegal immigrants have gotten mm, here and yeah. entered our country illegally, whereas Republicans and, and many of those on the right usually are all about how do we make this a legal process? How do we prevent people from crossing into our borders? Because without a, a border, we're not a, a country. We're not a nation. Um, and those are the major differences mm-hmm. I see. So when we hear about the complaints from um, the Democrats, it's, you know, People like Governor Abbott are sending all of these these illegal immigrants that have crossed our border to sanctuary cities. And I, I put that in air quotes because um, they are sanctuary to an extent. And even now we're seeing all of these mayors say, like, we can't handle this. And we're seeing communities, including in my my beloved Chicago, mm. um, where communities that are are struggling, they're very low income, are losing benefits. They're losing um, food. They're losing housing. They're losing all of the benefits that they received um, before because we have to accommodate this major influx of, of illegal immigrants. And that is largely because we have a president that is signaling to the world that, hey, we don't really have a border. You can come in if you want. We'll figure it out once you get here. And we have a governor in California that is offering free health care. So if you want taxpayer-funded health care, hey, come on by. But um, unfortunately, that is the major difference, I think, is we have some governors and some leaders in our movement that are saying, we want to prevent this from happening to begin with. We want to make sure those that have entered legally are honored and that there is the opportunity for people to enter legally, but there's got to be a process in place. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, there are humans on the other side of that process. So it's going to be a little slower, but if you want to come here, that that can be possible. And then on the other side, like I said, we've got people that'll be like, hey, figure it out when you get here. Just come on by. (laughs) Right. That's a good analysis. I think, too, to your point about sanctuary cities, Texas, Governor Greg Abbott, has bused just over 95,000 migrants to these sanctuary cities. Mm -hmm. And it's hilarious to watch what chaos this has caused in New York and Chicago and other places when really 95,000 total from from Governor Abbott, at least, is a drop in the bucket Mm -hmm. compared to what border and other cities in Texas have to deal with on a literally daily basis, right? We're talking about upwards of 10,000 people crossing the border mm-hmm. daily. Like yeah. 95,000 total is is a drop in the bucket. And when you, when you think about it, uh, you know, the border is a real opportunity and really one of the only issues where it seems like Republicans can really rally around common sense solutions yeah. that are focused on on safety and national security. And when you have the Justice Department just on Tuesday ask the Supreme Court to allow the feds to keep cutting Texas razor wire at the border, specifically Eagle Pass, and like you have this delegation from Congress along with the speaker down there today, Wednesday, uh, checking it out and seeing – in real time, what this looks like. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think it, it, this is really the GOP's fight to lose. Um, mm-hmm. They have so many opportunities. Like we passed HR2 last spring. There's a lot of really great common sense solutions in there. And at the end of the day, you know, while this is an opportunity f- to bring the GOP together, it's it's also an issue that really divides Democrats. Mm-hmm. And in an election mm-hmm. year, this is going to be something for us to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, it really is. Well, and you mentioned Speaker Johnson being down at the border with the delegation. So this week he, he was down there with about 60 other GOP lawmakers. And that really highlights just how important this issue is to Republicans this year specifically. Of course, it's an issue that we know is on the 
the minds of voters on both sides of the aisle. And it's really telling that before Congress is even back in session, they're not back till next week, they're already down at the border this week talking about the issue, looking at the problem. So, I mean, if you want to know what's going to be one of the major focuses in 2024 for the Republican Party, it's going to be the border. We had um, the new uh, the new chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, Representative Bob Good, on the Daily Signal podcast on Tuesday. And he he said, yeah, this is going to be our one of our major priorities mm-hmm. is securing the border and passing um, well, getting the Senate, putting pressure on the Senate to pass H.R. 2, which is the border security bill, Crystal, that you mentioned that was passed back in May that takes all of these steps to secure the border, does things like starts rebuilding the wall, uh, re-implements uh, the Made in Mexico policy, mm-hmm. like just practical things that make sense for securing the border. Because, Kristen, as you explained, the issue is right now illegal aliens are just told, hey, yeah, come on in. They're paroled into the country and then they can stay in the country for years until they get their court hearing. There's no removal. And so it's just it's been snowballing Mm -hmm. and the world knows that the border is open. And I think what's really funny, just to go back to the differences, is we say that Democrats don't necessarily believe that there is a huge problem with letting all of these people in. But um, little PW insider moment, I actually (laughs) spoke to someone um, that works for one of these representatives that's down at the border right now. And she said yesterday they went to Eagle Pass and totally cleared, totally, Mm. totally cleared. Today, they're going back. And she said, basically, they're 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 going to figure out what they need to do to make sure that our border is protected. Because once again, if we look at California and Texas, California's southern border is only 140 miles long. Texas's is 1,200, a little more than 1,200 miles long. One has more to lose than the other. And one is a lot more responsible than the other when it comes Mm -hmm. to this issue. So um, it'll be interesting, and I'm, I'm really glad that they were able to go to Texas. Yeah. Um, it is sad, though. It's almost like they are admitting the fact that this is a problem by clearing cities like yeah. that before they when even they get there. clean it up, yeah. make it look pretty before exactly. the real officials that are trying to do something about the issue arrive. It's very Can telling. I play devil's advocate? Play for devil's yes, advocate. Okay, so I am all for, I mean, I've spent a lot of time down at the border, especially in Texas. I mean, yeah. I went to school in San Diego. You could literally see the border <laughs> from my dorm room, like the whole cool. thing, right? It can, uh, cool. I don't know, but like it's a thing, right? So I've, I've grown up in border communities basically my entire life. And uh, while I'm never mad about more attention being called to what's going on down there, I think it's great that Representative Gonzalez and this congregation, congregation, whatever, <laughs> they're going down there, coalition, <laughs> words. you know, they're all going down there, uh, shining more light. Like, I think the more transparency, the better. Like, this is ultimately a good thing. But I do think that Congressman Chip Roy, who's from the Austin area, had a great point yesterday. Mm. He declined to go hmm. on this trip hmm. because his point is that we know that there's a crisis. Yeah. Mm. So our work is here in D.C., yeah. Fair. Like we have so much that we need to be doing here. We already we see the numbers. We see the footage. You follow Bill Malugin's Twitter like you're you know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Do you really need to go down there and see it yourself? I think it's good for them to go see it themselves. I think it's good for them to share on their social media, to share with their constituents and things like that. But ultimately, the ultimately at the end of the day, the work that needs to be done is here in D.C. and they need to be at the negotiating table. They need to be hammering out these provisions in HR2 and, and other solutions, right? HR2 is like a stopgap. Mm-hmm. It's it's good, but it's not everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a starting point. And so I think that there's so much more that, uh, that our representatives uh, could be doing here in D.C. than just going out and doing ride-alongs with, sure. with the sheriffs at the border. I think what we'll be telling is what do they do with the information? For those who haven't been to the border, maybe this is one of their first trips, they're getting insight they haven't gotten before, what do they do with that information? Yeah. Are they actually going to take action? That's going to be the tell. And they they have an opportunity right when they get back to start taking action. We actually just learned uh, Wednesday this week that um, that the House Homeland Security Committee chaired mm-hmm. by Congressman Mark Green is moving forward with impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Mayorkas, under, in that position, it is his job to make sure that America is not invaded, that our borders are secure. And for months now, Republicans have been saying he is 
failing at that. Last year, Congressman Mark Green launched an uh, investigation into Mayorkas. It was a five-pronged investigation and held hearings sort of focused on each issue, really looking at, okay, has has Mayorkas failed in these areas and should we move forward with an impeachment? He was really honest about that because people were sort of wondering why aren't you moving forward right now with an impeachment? This was back last summer. And he was like, no, 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 we need to go ahead and thoroughly move through an investigation. So the investigation, it looked at Mayorkas's dereliction of duty, how the border crisis facilitates the illegal activity of the drug cartels, the human cost of the border crisis, the financial mm-hmm. cost of the border crisis, and then suspected fraud within the Department of Homeland Security. So they have held hearings on all of these issues. We've had... Democrats and Republicans debating this, witnesses coming in, testifying, and now they're saying, okay, yes, we're moving forward. Punchable News reported this. We're moving forward with this impeachment into Mayorkas. And it was interesting because Mayorkas was actually doing a news hit on MSNBC when or just right after this news broke from Punchable. And he was asked, hey, are you going to cooperate with this impeachment inquiry? How do you respond to it? And I want to play that clip just so you can hear from Mallorca's perspective, his take on his own impeachment. We're just getting news this morning from Punchbowl News that the House Homeland Security Committee is formally moving ahead with impeachment proceedings against you with the first hearing to be held a week from today. What's your reaction? You know, uh, you mentioned um, earlier in our conversation uh, that I uh, joined the bipartisan group of senators to work on a legislative solution to a broken immigration system. Uh, I was uh, on the Hill yesterday to provide technical advice in those ongoing negotiations. Before I headed to the Hill, I was in the office working on solutions. After my visit to the Hill, I was back in my office working on solutions. That's what we do in the Department of Homeland Security. That's what this administration is focused on, solutions to problems. But you will cooperate with the hearings, the investigation here? I most certainly will. And I'm going to continue to do my work as well. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, thank you for your time this morning. We appreciate it. We're going to see this process play out. Want to note, even if the House succeeds um, in impeaching because the Senate is controlled by Democrats, it's unlikely that we would see things move forward in that sense. And, I mean, removal is, it's, gosh, that's like, you know, one in a million. It, it's, I I don't see that happening, Miracus being removed from his position. Uh, but it, it, it is, again, it's telling. It's the GOP saying, hey, we're laying out our priorities as we head into 2024, as we head into an election year. This is top of the list. And so it's going to be fascinating to watch this play out beginning next week is when they're having the first uh, impeachment hearing to decide how they're kind of officially moving forward with this. And really, no matter what happens, I mean, it'll never make it through the Senate, right? But at least from the House side, it's Republicans, conservatives drawing a line in the sand. Mm -hmm. And really, there's a bit of accountability here, right? Where it's like you have completely mishandled your the situation at the border. Mm -hmm. You have not done your job. And so at the end of the day, there needs to be a, a measure of accountability there. And I think that it won't go anywhere in the Senate like we've mentioned 100 times. Yeah. But at the end of the day, at least the House can say enough is enough. Yep. Yeah. Enough is enough. All right. Well, we will keep you all up to date on that. Make sure that you are checking out the Daily Signal website, following along as well with the Daily Signal podcast, because we'll be um, giving regular updates on that situation as it unfolds. But stay tuned. Up next, we're talking about another major hot button political issue, and that's climate change. But first, I want to tell you all about a super fun way that you can stay connected with problematic women during the week, every week. We are on Instagram. You probably know that if you've ever listened to the show before. We talk a lot about it. Uh, You can catch highlights of our show right here, reels, stay up to date on news that conservative women care about by following us on Instagram. Just search for problematic women. You can look for our bright 
pink logo. Give us a follow and make sure that you know if, if you send me a DM, I will respond. And we love hearing from you all. If you ever have topic ideas, you're like, hey, you guys should totally talk about this or you want to vote and nominate a problematic woman of the week, you can send us that on our Instagram. We love keeping up with you guys through Instagram. It's just a super fun platform. So make sure that you check us out there. All right, well, let's go ahead and talk climate change. APOC Worldwide reported a couple of years ago, so I have to imagine it's only gone up since then, that 45% of young people ages 16 to 25 reported that climate anxiety was affecting their daily lives. And honestly, I, I want to be in defense here of essentially Gen Z uh, and say I don't blame them. For that, because there is so much noise about climate change and how we're destroying our planet, the world is going to end, people are going to die, people are dying because of climate change. I mean, you look at people from President Joe Biden to Meghan Markle, and everyone, it seems like, is shouting about climate change and is really being very alarmist about climate change. And unfortunately, I mean, this is a this is a scientific issue that has become a political football. And so in in addition to co-hosting Problematic Women here, I also for the Daily Signal co-host the Daily Signal podcast and we are in the middle right now of a series on climate change because there's so many questions around climate change and I feel like there's so much misinformation honestly that comes from both sides of the aisle. I was like, "All right, I need to talk to experts and just ask some really foundational questions and set the record straight on climate change. So the first conversation I had, um, that episode was released Wednesday morning on the Daily Signal podcast. I really encourage you go back and listen to it. It was a really helpful conversation with David Legates. And we talked about the history of climate change. And uh, at David Legates, he serves as a visiting fellow with the Science Advisory Committee in the Center for Energy, Climate and Environment here at the Heritage Foundation. He's the former director of the Center for Climate Research at the University of Delaware. He knows his stuff. He's lived in this world for decades. And so he went into the history of climate change. And I asked him point blank, it was like, is the climate changing? And he was like, yes, it is. It's changing. Undoubtedly, it's changing. But the climate has always changed and it always will change. And I I think that's just really important to establish that, that, okay, we don't have to deny the climate is changing because it is changing. But the response for one is, no, this is normal. Now, there's a lot of disagreement over um, the causes of climate change, even among conservatives, because the second conversation, we talk about the root causes of climate change, the second um, interview that came out this morning, and then the one coming out tomorrow morning, Friday morning, is how do we respond to the fears around climate change? But we start that conversation talking a little bit more about the root causes. And um, it's two different two different researchers that I have on, and they actually disagree with each other. They have different opinions, even though um, they both are, are visiting fellows here at the Heritage Foundation. And I was like, oh, th- this is interesting. But they both agree that we don't need to be concerned because no matter what the root causes are, we know that climate change happens. It, there's cycles of warming and cooling with the planet. So anyway, very, very helpful conversation. But we hear so many different narratives, like I've said, about climate change. What are some of these really common narratives that we hear from both sides of the aisle around climate change that maybe are helpful or not helpful? I mean, I I think, Crystal, you, you are from the, the place that gets the worst <laughs> reputation <laughs> for this. But, um, you know, it's always fossil fuels, fossil fuels, fossil fuels, uh-huh. oils, oil rigs, Evil. oil rigs. Yeah. yeah, like big oil. It's always big something yeah. um, when it comes to anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is we are humans are responsible for this. It's our fault. We're overpopulated. We eat too much steak. We eat. We right. drive too many cars. And yeah. America has the worst reputation because we keep our lights on all the time. And, and that's a problem. And I mean, sure, like maybe you should think about saving energy and all of that. Um, but those are those are what I hear, at least. Yeah. <laughs> and the world is ending. Yeah. And the world is ending. Well, and it was so fascinating because I so the conversation that comes out Friday morning is with um, an expert named Roy Spencer. And he he's really honest and he was like well yeah it was like you know co2 and emissions it could be contributing some to climate change we really don't know 
But again, he was like, but the, it's so minimal. It's so minimal that we don't need to be concerned about it. Like the, the increase uh, is so, so small. And I do think it's very important to point out that, Kristen, you're right. I feel like the U.S. gets such a bad rap. Uh, but when you look at uh, the United States compared to India, compared to China, it's like the U.S. is doing a really good job, a really good job at, at being conscientious about environment and planet. Um, and, and we're looking at sustainable solutions, we're looking, too. Yeah. Whereas a lot of these people. sustainable. It's just technology, right? right. I mean, like yeah. the U.S. has the world's cleanest air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? Technology. Yeah. <laughs> like we've done a really good job of figuring out hydraulic fracturing and mm-hmm. how to have clean coal and things like that. And at the end, of the, like coming, you know, spending a lot of time. California is, used to be an oil producing state, kind of still is. But and Texas as well, right? It's like we have the technologies. Natural gas is crazy, crazy good way to, you know, be able to continue our lifestyle and yeah. like save people's lives quite literally uh, without having as much of a quote-unquote negative impact on the environment. So I think that there's – I just – I don't know. I I hate this whole conversation personally because I think at the end of the day, it's really just this like elitist globalist mentality of like they just hate people. Yeah. Like yeah. they just don't like humans. Yeah. We're the root cause of all evil. They – you know, I mean it's part of the reason why we have a population crisis. Like we are – you know, we don't have enough people anymore and nobody wants to talk about that because God forbid we have more people than we're just because – they have framed it as like we are the problem. If we have more of us, then we have more problem. Then we have more climate change, and then we die sooner. Like it's just no, yeah, nope. And it's, it's <laughs> I don't like it. Crystal's take, nope. <laughs> Hot take, no. But yeah, and and then the flip side of that, the same coin, the same people that hate on us for you know using fossil fuels, etc. They also hate on people for you know hunting, providing their own food. It's like they hate feedlots, but they also don't want you to go out and like hunt your own elk yeah. or like go take down a bison. Like, no. Pick pick your poison it's here. Like you, can't, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> I'm not going to live on crickets ways. for the rest of my life. And like there are, there are like yeah. really ecological, sustainable ways to raise animals for human consumption that are actually beneficial to the earth. More so, but whatever. Yeah. That's that's a topic for another day. <laughs> no, well, it, I, it's very accurate, and you have to look at the areas where um, the a rising tide lifts all boats, and you're actually seeing areas being pulled out of poverty with developing technologies that, yeah, produce CO two emissions. You know these these types of things, but when you have um, when you have that increased development, that eliminates poverty that actually helps the climate because then people can live more sustainably. There's things like, uh, you know, I mean, if you go to a third world country, there is just a lot of garbage and waste right. everywhere. Imagine if countries, in, like there's a lot of countries in Africa. We, when I was at Texas Public Policy Foundation, our life powered organization made a ton of really beautiful documentaries on this. There's so many places in Africa that they're burning wood or dung fires inside their home. Mm-hmm. That kills so many people and it mm-hmm. creates such an unhealthy living environment, right? But if they had access to natural gas or fossil fuels or whatever it may be, that would improve, A, their quality of life. And then they wouldn't be dying from breathing in burning dung in their homes. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's really pretty simple. Yeah. And we have, I mean, whatever, to get to the policy part of this, right, we have an excess of natural gas in the U.S. that we could be exporting to countries like that and really truly improving the lives of millions of people around the world. Yeah. But it's evil. So therefore, we don't. And we just trap those people in a cycle of poverty. And let's talk about fossil fuels for a second, because that's like, you know, the the red flag that everyone likes Mm -hmm. to point to. But fossil fuels, the reason that they're bad or so, you know, Democrats say is because they release large amounts of carbon dioxide into the air and are destroying the ozone layer. The hole I think that they're referring to is over the Arctic or Antarctic. It's one of the poles. I think it's the South Pole, actually. So the Antarctic. Um, But if we look at the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, 78% of the atmosphere is made of nitrogen, 21% of the um, atmosphere is made of oxygen, and 0.4% is carbon dioxide. And if you look 
um, in a hearing recently, um, a, a member of the House actually said this, 11% of that carbon dioxide is man-made. So mm. we're talking about less than half a percentage point of which only 11% is created by humans. So why are we looking at the solutions that we are looking at? Have we thought of other ones other than, you know, bugs um, and and you know, the way that we fuel our, our world? Like, have we thought of other things? Because <laughs> yeah. it feels like there's a, a way different solution out there that we just either don't have the intelligence for, which is fine. You know, we're still learning everything. Um, that's why we have NASA and all of these great agencies and science organizations. But um, who said that the, the bug solution was the way to go? Because <laughs> I wouldn't have voted for that. <laughs> I think, too, Alex Epstein is so eloquent on this. Mm-hmm. And his most recent book, does a really great job of countering these narratives. And just kind of back to this globalist elitist mentality, it's like you can't have you can't have gas stoves because they're bad for the environment. Yeah. But Kamala Harris and her <laughs> sorry. <laughs> just say it. <laughs> and her PR team and their infinite wisdom will post multiple photos of the vice president and her husband in front of their gas stove over the holidays. Yeah. You know, Bill Gates can tell us all to eat crickets for the rest of our life because it's better for us, quote unquote, and it's good for the environment. And he can go head off to, you know, the IWF thing or in his private jet. Yeah. It's like there's no there's no regard for the everyday American, the everyday insert country here citizen. It's us versus them. It's elitist versus everybody else. Mm -hmm. You have to eat crickets while we dine like Gavin Newsom on mm. filet mignon during the COVID pandemic. Like yep. there's, it's not, yeah. it's not about science. It's not about facts. Exactly. It's about control. And it's political. They, it, they recognize that I win political points when I stand up and I'm a hero for the environment. And I tell everyone that they need to get rid of their gas stoves. I come across as some great warrior for the planet. And virtue signaling it's at virtue its finest. Sing- exactly. Exactly. And the reality is that they are not dealing in the facts. And the facts are that at the end of the day, we there's disagreement among scientists about the root causes. But scientists agree that there are periods of warming and cooling. Yeah. This is normal. This is natural. We can all take a deep breath. Essentially, this is good news, right? It's good news. We can take a deep breath. The planet is not going to be destroyed by climate change. You're not going to die because of climate change. There's ebbs and flows, always ebbs and flows. This is normal. Last thing. Sorry to, like, cut you off, Virginia. But um, I'm looking at, you know, some of the graphs that I'm sure a lot of scientists use to justify, like, these solutions and all of that. And the one I'm looking at is from Goddard, um, which is a NASA uh, facility. And it goes only back to 1880. So it's 1880 to 2020, which is a good amount of time, like, for sure. Significance is probably fine. But the last time the earth was this hot. It was actually hotter um, because people are saying that we've increased by one degree Celsius. Mm-hmm. It was two degrees Celsius hotter when woolly mammoths were around. So what does that tell you about the cyclical changes as we have, you know, orbiting planets that are getting further from the sun or closer to the sun? I'm not exactly, I don't remember. I think it's further from the sun. What does that tell you about how planets change over time? That is a knowledge that we do not yet have. Yeah. So not to, I just wanted to throw that in because I don't <laughs> think people think about that enough is 200 years is not as significant as how old the planet is. Yeah, very very good point. All right. We're well, going to have steak for dinner tonight. Go <laughs> do it. Just saying. <laughs> All the meat. <laughs> Let's switch gears to Ohio. We could, we could keep popping right? off on this. But Ohio. What's happening in Ohio? That was a great transition. I love Ohio. <laughs> it was Ohio. not a great transition. <laughs> but I actually just saw this is a total tangent. I just saw because Ohio, Ohio gets a lot of hate. Yeah. Um, I am not always saying super nice things about Ohio. Sorry to all of our listeners from Ohio. But I saw a great reel on Instagram the other night that uh, was like this super cool waterfall and like hiking spot in Ohio. And I was like, dang, I need to give Ohio maybe a little more credit than I have. (laughs) So anyway, maybe I'll visit Ohio this year. But this is totally off topic. Kristen. No, you should. (laughs) Ohio is a great state. It's a great state. My brother lives there. He he works for Honda. Like maybe he made a car that... I don't know who drives a Honda, but whoever does, he might have built that. My first car was a Honda. There we go. He probably go. didn't build that one because he just started. But <laughs> anywho, Ohio. So Governor DeWine over there, he's getting a lot of flack for actually vetoing the SAFE Act this week. The SAFE Act stands for Saving Adolescents from Experimentation. 
it's a very vague. <laughs> it's a, yeah. But also, I kind of love how people name things now. Like, <sighs> they didn't used to be that creative. It used to be like House Bill whatever. Now it's like actually stands for something. Mm-hmm. But what this bill actually does is it really focuses on the transgender movement and how it impacts kids. And Mm -hmm. um, the representative that uh, introduced this, Representative Gary Click, I heard an interview that he did with Riley Gaines recently. And man, that guy's heart is in the right place Mm. um, when he's talking about this, because what he really drilled down on is um, this bill was introduced to prevent sex change procedures for children. And he, you know, kind of is like, okay, I know what you're thinking. Um, you're, You're hearing that and you're like, we don't want surgeries. We don't want any of that. But he's like, it's more than that, though, because that's the narrative you all have been fed. Mm-hmm. It's also all of those puberty blockers, hormonal treatments, cross-sex hormones. Um, and it's all of that because at the end of the day, those type of treatments really impact kids mm-hmm. long term. And we don't have enough science like we just talked about. We don't have a long enough study to really understand what the impacts of these treatments, surgeries, whatever um, gender, uh, air quotes, affirming <laughs> care have on those kids. And um, and that's really why he introduced this bill. The reason that he was criticized, and he was even criticized by President Trump, who is one of his buddies. Um, they both have, um, you know, backed each other when they've run for different, uh, when they run from, for governor and president. But um, they've been close for a while. And even President Trump was like, this is wrong. This is disgusting. What are you doing? That um, DeWine vetoed it, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Not um, that it was introduced. We liked that it was introduced. We liked it's that it good, was introduced. It's a good bill. <laughs> yes. But um, the fact that the governor um, vetoed this um, because there was so much support across the aisle. Um, yeah. And actually, in Ohio— It's common sense. It's, it's a lit- common sense bill. But see, when you when you argue—and this is what—I'll um, give full credit to Rep. Click. Um, when you argue for common sense things, it's an uphill battle nowadays, yeah. which is insane. Um, Just really quick, uh, pointing out that the reason Governor DeWine had said that he was vetoing it is because he did a focus group with a lot of LGBTQ plus um, individuals, a lot of children. And um, Representative Click went on to explain that he thinks that, you know, he let the emotions of that type of focus group mm. really impact his decision making, which, again, just shows you how much love Representative Click has for not only this issue, but for those that are conflicted. Um, and again, he he kind of justified why he did this and said, I have children, I have grandchildren, and I want my grandchildren to be in a world where this type of agenda is not, you know, where their sports are protected, because that's another yeah. part of this, um, and where they're not being, you know, fed these this propaganda. And so really brave. Uh, it actually passed in uh, both the Senate and the House. And like I said, bipartisan support. So Democrats and Republicans oh. on both sides supported uh, this bill. But I guess uh, f- for you guys, what do you think of Governor DeWine's actions and like his decision to veto this bill? It, it's telling. And unfortunately, I think it's an instance where it's political pressure uh, is what I feel like it's it's chalked up to that uh, we've seen this in the past from another governor that um, is very conservative. They they have a lot of great um a lot of great policies that they stand for. They advocate for a lot of conservative principles. And then specifically when it comes to the transgender issue, when it comes to protecting women's sports, when it comes to protecting kids from transgender um, gender treatments, they cave on this issue. And I think it's out of fear because the radical left is so loud on this issue. Mm-hmm. There's so much money behind it. There's so much emotion behind it that they sort of are like, eh. and I think if they're not engaged enough on the issue, they're not educated enough on the issue to understand the risk, to understand that kids' lives are being ruined because at 15 they're having double mastectomies to understand that opportunities are being taken away from women who are uh, losing spots on teams and championships and medals to biological men. If they don't understand the full picture, if they have not been educated, I think it becomes very easy to take the easy route out and say, well, I don't want to be I don't want to be bashed by this really loud group on the radical left. So Eh, this isn't really a big deal. I'm just gonna just gonna kind of give them this one. 
think if I could boil it down to one sentence, it's that kids aren't science experiments. Mm. Yep. You know, and I think that it's Governor Devine's uh, capitulation to this radical, radical ideology uh, is is really disappointing. Although he was terrible on COVID too. Mm. You know, and so I think this concept that these folks that were against this bill per mm-hmm. se, and these families that he talked to in this focus group are his constituency to get him reelected as governor. I just, I don't see it. Yeah. The vote math isn't there. In yeah. a state like Ohio, mm-hmm. you're not getting elected as a Republican governor running on this platform. Mm-mm. You're just not. Yeah. And like we've seen at least 11 other states pass similar legislation. So it's not like Ohio was doing this big, bold, crazy thing yeah. that was, you know, they weren't the tip of the tip of the spear. Yeah, they're just following in the steps of other conservative states. Many other mm-hmm. states have done this. Yeah. It's utterly disappointing. Yeah. It's yeah. really sad. It is As, really sad. You know, I, we've had this conversation a hundred times, <laughs> at least when I've been on the podcast, 100%. about being former college athletes, Kristen and I. Yeah. And it's like the sports component of this bill, right? If I was a high school kid right now playing the sports that I played mm-hmm. and there were biological males in the locker room. I'm out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. Yeah. Like, it's just not okay. And I don't know a single parent personally. I haven't seen any polling that shows that parents are okay with that. Mm -mm. It's universal. It's common sense. It's not, you know. It shouldn't, it should not be. It's wild that we're even having to make the legislation in the first place. Right. Um, Right. But then the fact that it's not automatically every time getting signed into law is... It's really sad. And this has happened in other states, too, where, you know, it passes with flying colors or maybe almost flying colors and then it's vetoed. And Mm -hmm. there's options after that. It doesn't mean that we are totally, you know, done. Um, And Representative Gary Click, actually, he's done a lot of media on this, explaining that um, Ohio is uh, they're ending their break, uh, their holiday break a little early and coming back Mm. to actually do a vote on this bill. And if they get a three fifths majority, then that can override the veto. Yeah, they can override the veto. So um, just for those of you trying to do the math, because I personally didn't know anything about the Ohio (laughs) State House, um, Ohio only needs 59 representatives and 20 senators to vote in favor of this bill. And for those that maybe were keeping track of the votes that have already occurred, they originally passed this bill with 64 representatives and 24 senators. So so the vote's there. The mm-hmm. vote's there. The vote's they just got to show up, right? Like, we just got to make sure that they come in and, and are able to vote, which okay. it sounds like, sounds I mean, like get it, done. it sounds like they're going to get it done for sure. I know our sister organization, Heritage Action, is really involved in this fight in Ohio. And so, you know, if anyone's interested in following along, Heritage Action is a good uh, place to keep up with it all. Resource for that. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, stay tuned because up next, we are talking about some contenders for who might be the most problematic woman of 2024. Stay tuned. Are you looking for an easy and entertaining way to keep up with the news you care about? The Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels offer interviews with policy experts on the most critical issues and debates America is facing today, as well as short explainer videos that break down complex issues and documentaries that dive deep into the ways policy actually impacts people. Go ahead and subscribe to both the Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels today. You can search for either on your YouTube app or visit youtube.com slash Heritage Foundation and youtube.com slash Daily Signal. All right. Well, instead of crowning a problematic woman of the week this week, we are changing it up a little bit here at the top of the year. And we are talking about who the problematic woman of 2024 might be. So if you missed the last show of 2023, go back and listen. But we crowned Riley Gaines as the most problematic woman of 2023 of the entire year. She definitely earned that title. And my goodness, I think we're just going to keep seeing amazing things from her in 2024. But there are many conservative women doing great things who are really pushing back against some of the wild narratives that we're seeing. So for you all, looking at the political landscape, all of the things happening, who do you think are some of the women that could maybe earn the title this year? It'll be interesting. I think this will be fun. We'll we'll amass a little list today, and then in December, we will go back and look and see 
if if the woman who earned that seat as the most prominent woman of 2024 is is actually the winner. That's cute. I love this. Yeah. I love this so much. And what first comes to mind is uh, Italy's PM Maloney. Oh, um, I'm not gonna going to say her first name. Going outside the U.S. Because okay. I, don't, I don't know how to say it. But she has just killed it lately. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see what she does with this new year. Huh. That's actually that's interesting to go outside the U.S. because you do think about everything that's happening in our world. Um, so much happening, obviously in Israel. There, it is very possible that we could see some uh, some very pro- problematic women on the world stage. My America pick is uh, Amy Coney Barrett, though. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Quite quite different people. Yeah, <laughs> very different people. So we have talked about Nikki Haley on this show in the past, and. Within the conservative movement, there's a lot of varied opinion. I'm not going to share my personal opinions right now on the show. There's a lot of varied opinions, I'll just say, about Nikki Haley. But the fact that she is one of the top contenders in the presidential race that could be shifting. It is shifting quickly. Um, but for 2024, um, it's possible that if whether it's her or another conservative in the White House, that it, it's possible that she will end up in some, some leadership, some position, leadership yeah. position that has a lot of influence. Um, and, you know, there's some issues that she's great on. There's some issues that I do not agree with her on. But she she could have a pretty big impact this year. I think she's a really good debater. Honestly. She is a mm-hmm. good debater. Yeah, she held her own. Okay. So staying in that realm, hmm. I am going to choose First Lady of Florida, Casey DeSantis. Oh, Ooh. yes, yes, And yes. not for any personal reason. Uh, but <laughs> not biased. Okay, I'm a little biased. Uh, but I do think that no matter what happens with the primary, uh, I think Casey DeSantis is a powerful voice for women. Mm-hmm. What she did with Mamas for DeSantis during mm-hmm. the governor's reelect in Florida was mm-hmm. phenomenal, like crazy. They turned out so many suburban women to vote uh, in that gubernatorial election in Florida. Yeah. And I think that there's there's a lot of rumors in that world that, you know, Casey really should be the one running for office and something like that. I don't know if she will or has even considered that. But I do think that she is so eloquent. She's brilliant. And she really has a presence on a stage. If you've ever seen her speak, she really commands a room. Yeah. And so whether, you know, if DeSantis makes it through the primaries, into the general, into the big house, like her as a first lady of the United States would be interesting um, if DeSantis doesn't, I still think that there's a lot of opportunities for Casey to be really active at the more national level mm-hmm. uh, than she has been in the past. It's just First That's Lady of Florida. So Very keep an eye out on I it. I could see that. I want to throw out one other name that we talked about um, as a contender in 2023 that I think we'll continue to see big things from in 2024, and that's Megan Kelly. Yeah. That, um, she is just such a force to be reckoned with. And a, a little bit similarly uh, to Tucker Carlson, uh, but of course, female, uh, you know, she's kind of broken the mold of of media and she has her own podcast now and she's just she's not constrained by other media voices. And I think that gives her a lot of power and a lot of opportunity to just call balls and strikes and just kind of speak truth and uh, analyze situations and not be tied down by all right, you know, I can't say this because my boss doesn't want me to or higher ups or whatever. Like she's just not constrained by so many of those things that normal media personalities are. And in an election year, you need those really Mm -hmm. honest people that are just analyzing. This is what I'm seeing. These are the facts. And I think we could continue to see some pretty insightful analysis uh, from Megyn Kelly this year. Love it. All right. Cool. Well, we'll check back in... uh 12 months. 12 months. Sounds good. 300 something days. (laughs) Well, thank you all for being with us today for kicking off the new year. That's a good place to leave it. Join us right back here next Thursday morning. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. We'll see you right back here next Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.